Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Insights, where we talk with Kevin Kenney about his first solo album in more than a decade and his first vinyl release since the 1990s, Think About It. The album features REM co-founders Peter Buck and Bill Berry, as well as Brad Morgan of Drive-By Truckers, Laura Joemitz of Driving and Crying, Midland, Sturgill Simpson, and more. Think About It has its roots in the introspective solitude of the pandemic, and also the passing of Kenny's old friend, the iconic, oddball, musical, improvisational genius and lightning rod philosopher, Colonel Bruce Hampton. The conversation starts with Kevin growing up in Milwaukee, but ultimately moving to Atlanta, where he formed his popular band, Driving and Crying. He told the story of how the band members met in Atlanta and that there was great synergy from the start. We also spoke about his prolific songwriting, how he simultaneously works on projects with Driving and Crying, as well as his solo projects, and the enjoyment he gets from working with other artists. Uh, how are you doing? Good to see Good. you. Good. Yeah, great to see you. It's been a while. Been Welcome a minute, to my office. Say. Can you see my office here? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. It's, it's on my board games. So, um. <laughs> what, okay, what's your favorite board game? What do you like to play? Uh, well, I like Scrabble. But, um. I don't know. I got a Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. I think that might be kind of fun. But uh, I, I play one with my granddaughters called Snoopy's Doghouse, which is pretty good. You, you roll your dice to get all the pieces of the doghouse. So what about what about Candyland? Candyland kinda... is pretty good. Candyland was ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah right. I'm trying yeah, to design. I'm trying to come up with a design for a driving and crying board game. So I'm trying to think of all the excuses of why people didn't come to the shows and. You know, like, uh, go back. Uh, uh, why is nobody? At, uh, no one's at the show. No one came to the show. It was opening of uh, duck hunting season. <laughs> go back to spaces. Uh, 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 Sound man shouldn't have eaten at McDonald's. Go back one space. You know, uh, you know, just. Oh my god, that would be so hilarious. I know. Trying to th- for thirty eight years of traveling, I've got to come up with at least a, a, a hundred different chants. It, it, it'll be like a shoots and ladders things when it's like it takes you all the way back to the beginning like you're yeah, starting yeah, all over the way back there was that yeah, <laughs> record promotion said it was over the next mountain he lied back to square one yeah back to square one exactly. the thing is, like you never get you never get through you never you can't ever, you can't finish it like there's right. absolutely no way you can you can finish it there's only like and even when you do you just says you know congratulations you've just wasted your time <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Well, like you made a lot of people happy on the way. So <laughs> like I've never finished a game of Monopoly. It just it kind of just ends whenever you feel like ending it. And then someone yeah. has more real estate than everybody else. And that's right. kind of life, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, when life gets rough, uh, it's best to just quit. That's what I say. Right. <laughs> that's what I taught my kids. So, are you in Memphis? Is that Memphis outside the window there? Yeah. Yeah. We're right in downtown Memphis. We're, uh, in, in fact, I'm, I'm going to get to that in a little bit because um, because of a quote that you you put out there. I'm going to talk to you about that. But um, this is your first solo album in a decade. Think about it. Yeah. Uh, it's coming out December 9th, obviously, like just, uh, what is that, tomorrow? comes out tomorrow, so uh, that's when you can place your orders. But yeah, <laughs> we didn't have any, we didn't do any pre-release or pre-orders. We just could be like, let's just put it out on that day and see, make sure we have the records. We have the records, and we might have the CDs soon, so we're hoping we're hoping they're, they're on their way. Right on, right on. Well, before we get to the album, though, I kind of wanted to set this up, because I wanted to kind of go back talk to you about how Kevin Kenny got involved in music and all the stuff that you've done and your previous solo projects. And then we're going to get to this one because it kind of all builds on a lot of what you've done, I think. Yeah. I think this is like my 10th solo record, I think, isn't it? Something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think it is, but what's really cool is you kept driving and crying going through the whole thing. And then you've had all these other really cool projects that kind of stand alone in in themselves. And so I, I thought that that was a really cool creative path that you've taken. Not everybody can do that. Some people just kind of quit doing one thing and do another, and then maybe they go back, but they don't keep maintaining on through the whole process, you know? Right. Well, um, you know, the, the first driver crying record is, uh, um, uh, the first Kevin Kinney solo record, my first solo record, McDougal blues is, is, Tim and Day or Tim and and uh, Jeff and Buren, they're all on it. The band's all on it. So it's um, also Broken Hearts Auto Parts. That's got Mac and Dave and Tim on it. That's all driving and crying. But it's just kind of a different. Uh, um, it's it's I I write the same amount of rock songs as I do um, solo songs. So I wind up with an imbalance. So even early on when we tried to like add. The driving and crying, like we have so many rockers on us on a whatever whatever heavier songs, we always wound up with three acoustic songs or one acoustic song or you know whatever. And so I kind of came, I kind of had an overload of acoustic stuff. So yeah, um, it was really uh, uh, part of the Peter Buck was our he was going to produce Mystery Road, our our sec our third album. And he did the demos for it, and then we went a different direction with a producer. But then Island was like, "I hope he could do like us your solo record or something." So that's where McDougal Blues came from. We went back to John Keane. Very cool. Focused on that, like, so that's kind of where it started, and then, and then I just kind of kept it up because it really made it really they really feed off each other. Like when I need to take a break from Driver Crying, I do the fo- solo stuff, and then the solo stuff. There's a fly in here somehow. It's, it's like 80 degrees in Atlanta. It's so crazy. Um, I know. I think I just got bitten by a mosquito. Is that possible? Yeah. It's December. December of, what, the, yes. what the hell, right? Eighth or, or whatever it is. Uh, so, yeah, so they kind of feed off each other, you know. Um, I need to do both, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I know when I, 
of course the grass is always greener so i made a way to i could just keep jumping over the fence over and over and over again so i don't really have that you know i don't play with the band or i don't play with the band songs or the acoustic stuff or the i don't do acoustic stuff with the band stuff it's like it's all just you know we'll do McDougal blues and drive a crying or broken hearts and well i mean there are no rules so there's no rules like if you're not gonna have rules then don't have rules so um we just kind of go with the go with the flow and see what the the vibe of the of the day is, you know. Yeah, so, you grew up in Milwaukee, right? I did. I grew up in uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, the northwest side, uh, west of the tracks. Uh, um, yeah, I went to Marshall High School, and one of my best friends was a uh, Brian Ritchie from the Violet Femmes. So I will never be the most famous person from my high school. <laughs> <laughs> That was like yeah. my parents. My dad graduated with Elvis Presley in his class. Oh, and, yeah. I see. And, my, and my dad was always like, really, we have to go to Graceland for our high school reunion every time. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> yeah. He had the wow. high school reunions out there. That was awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That'd well, be a good then, article. I think that yeah. you should have wrote that article. What's it I like? Know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was pretty, pretty crazy. Wasn't um, it like three in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> in in a, in a furniture store, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, that was that's Elvis for you. Um, yeah. So so, what was Milwaukee like? I, there was Summerfest, right? Like you grew up in Summerfest was a thing, right? It was a big part of my musical education because it was really you could see Woody Herman and the Thundering Herd and Muddy Waters and Steve Miller, and um, you could see you know the Ramones. First place I saw the Ramones. First place I saw, um, you know, um, like Johnny Cash. And you could get, you know, it was like, you know, it was a great, you know. Oh, wait, I might have to sneeze. (laughs) Sorry. I'm up in the attic here. Um, Yeah, so it was a really great education. It's a great, it's a two-week festival. You you could go every day, especially in the summer. And my best friend, uh, somehow his dad worked for Miller. So we always got free tickets. So it was just really great to be able to just uh, you could see uh, you know a Russian folk singer or they had international stages and they had uh, blues stages and jazz and you know I see like the Brecker Brothers or uh, um, you know I don't know if Chick Corea might have been too big for that stage he probably played the big stage but you know just see a whole Leon Russell uh, the band I saw the band play there on their last tour um, it was just a really great way to you know to see, to, to get a good rounded out musical education. Did you ever play there? I did. I, we driver car played there in their heyday. Yeah. We did one other in fly me crazy. I think we did a, sh- a show there. Yeah. But I'm not really, nobody knows who I am in Milwaukee. Like I left, like <laughs> I, I still play to like, you know, 80 people at the most, you know, it's, I've never, we're not really a, a Midwestern band, you know, it, it, Never really translated. It was good that I got out of there because I think it would still be. I think you're a Southerner. We've adopted you, Kevin. I'm just Thank saying. you. Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I, think I think I am a Southerner. You know, my grandfather was a was a um, was from uh, you know they're all from uh, in Missouri, Southern Illinois. So they we always have a little bit of that. My my great grandfather, I think, or my great grand. One of them was a, like a tent revival preacher, something like that, in Missouri and Kansas and all that stuff, you know. So I think I have a little bit of that in my DNA, you know, my wanderlust and my, 
And, uh, you know, it's probably why I love Bono so much. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how many guys I talk to who are musicians that came from a revival background, like the tent revival background. There's something yeah. kind of crazy and musical about it. And, you know, there's, you can just do whatever you want to do and it's just totally acceptable. And, yeah. and out of that, they're just crazy rockers. You know, it just comes just, out of that. Yeah, you're, and you're just traveling on the road. It's kind of like what we do now, you know, just traveling in this caravan. And you hope someone comes to your little shindig and your revival and you hope people get it. And, you know, so it's, you know, it, uh, it, uh, there's a little bit of that in there I could see, especially when, you know, the 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 early uh, the early sun, the prison airs and all that early sun stuff was, you know, all about that, you know, so. So you grew up in Milwaukee. You learned to play guitar somewhere along the way when you were young, right? Um, high school, yeah, was a, or elementary school. Uh, I was like sixteen. I was late. I was late learning guitar. My, like I said, Brian Ritchie was. Um, he played guitar. He play, he, I used to remember going to the music store with him. And he could play bar chords, you know, which was like I was like, wow, you know, he could be like, you know, like. Like, what is that? <laughs> it's, it's a, I'm, I'm, I've got my guitar. And I'm like playing the C, like C, C, G. And he's like, I was like, oh wow, that's a lot easier. And then like, so, so yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm learning guitar, it? Kevin. I'm a fiddle player, but I'm learning guitar. And I'm yeah. sort of where you, where you were back then. So I'm ta I'm trying to like learn all these bar chords. And so some of the songs that that I've written, they're really simple. And someone said, "Can't you put in some more chords?" I'm like, "Well, no, I can't, not no. yet." <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I keep it. That's why I keep it simple. Yeah. So but yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. I started off. I just got, but then you know, in the and I, I, what I really wanted to be was a writer. So I wanted. To, I, went, I took journalism classes, and I. I went to college for printing press. I wanted to make my own underground newspaper and uh, and things like that. I really wanted to write. And and in, in doing so, uh, I met this band called the Haskells in 1977, 78, 78. And I became their roadie. And, uh, I, you know, I was still in high school, but I would, like, go to Chicago or, you know, they didn't tour, but they played Milwaukee on the weekends. And I learned how to set up gear and watch a band practice and i mean they were my rock and roll high school like i learned everything about rock and roll how to make a poster how to promote a show how to do like three sets a night how to rehearse you know how many rehearsals it takes to learn a new song um and all this it was really a great education i really i got fast-tracked from this you know yeah uh, into this thing and then and then just by default, learning how to tune guitars and stuff, I learned how to play it a lot better, you know. So it sure. kind of it was, you know. Um, and then I started a punk rock band with the with the other roadie, and we had a band called the Prosecutors. And so it was me and him. We're uh, we're a little punk rock band for a while. And uh, that was now, were of, you still in Milwaukee then, or had you moved? This to is all still Milwaukee. Oh, okay, okay. I actually had a career, like I, you know, I had a whole. You know, I did a whole bunch of jobs. I was a pharmacy tech and and all these different jobs. I worked for record stores. I worked, um, I worked for Peaches. I worked for uh, this place. I called love Ray Peaches. Records. I was a forty five buyer at Peaches on Silver Spring Road in Milwaukee. Uh, 
And um, the sound man of the band was the manager, so he kind of got me in. And then uh, I and then I worked with records for a pretty long time. You know, uh, I worked for One Stop uh, in downtown Milwaukee. They had one copy of every record. It was like the Library of Congress. If it was in print, they had one copy of it because they were they would we would sometimes we would sell. 700 copies to you know make an order up and sometimes it'd be like four copies going to a barber shop in southern illinois you know it's really great like really learned a lot about classical i learned all about the labels i learned you know um uh you know it's and i just got turned on to you know tons of music and just lots of different fans and i you know i love 45s and stuff like that so i kind of um you know, I had this was just I've just been obsessed with music my whole performing and music and the music and the rec and the magazine that I started is still in um it's in Milwaukee it's still it's called the Shepherd Express now and it's kind of uh like the creative loafing of Atlanta or something like that you know and what would you say that you were able to sort of combine um your desire to write I guess with music because that's what music writing is and it's all about lyrics and 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 song but you you already had a career in writing that kind of helped well, what was i was not a very good writer i <laughs> um i lacked the attention to write i could never write a book like i you know anything like that i could write an article but i always wanted to be in kind of like prose you know um it's, it, it was never coherent it, it might you know i might have been on some sort of spectrum back if i would have been tested you know um but I found songwriting the perfect thing because I could write the outline of the story. I could put a few teaser lines in there from the characters and create a soundtrack all within five minutes. And like Good Country Mile is this beautiful this <laughs> song. It's a really sto great story arc. And I could put it all in seven minutes and it's done, you know, and, and it has emotion to it. It's good for people with short attention spans. It's... They get a whole movie within seven minutes. And um, so I thought this is just, this is a really great way to express yourself, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I really, I really ran with it and I've, and I've never stopped writing, you know, having uh, multiple songs in the, in the works at all times, you know, cause I'm always, I never know when it's going to, I'm going to lose the gift, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of always putting records out, just you know sometimes they're not you know i made a couple like down outlaw the one i made in memphis that is i think it's out of print now but that was kind of fast um you know i made a couple that have maybe rushed a little bit but you know they're documented this one coming around again you know i didn't have a voice but i, I so then there's always room to redo or whatever i don't mind redoing my songs if i have to you know as i've done on this new record i did redid three songs on there that have already been written, but I did, you know, I approached them as a 60 year old instead of a 16 year old, you know, it's, it's a little, a little bit different, but yeah. So I mean, why did, why did you move from to Atlanta then originally from Milwaukee? What prompted you? Did you know someone down there or? Yeah. My brother walked the Appalachian trail mm -hmm. and he wound up in Atlanta and he was here making a pretty good living, uh, working, uh, at the water plant. And then, uh, he was a he was in a bluegrass band. He plays. He's in the Georgia Music Hall of Fame for old time fiddle. He's an old time fiddle player. Oh, nice. His, his name is Mickle Kinney, M I K E L, and Kitty. 
And yeah, yeah he's an old time filler, you know. So he's got that. The, like all of his friends are like a hundred, you know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so he he teaches old time fiddle and things like that. And you know, he um he's got a a, a variety of of projects he works on and does. Uh, I think he's got a YouTube. Uh, I think he teaches over Zoom and things like that. But um, so yeah, he was like, "You should come down here, man. They got construction jobs here." And um, so I was like, "Okay." So I moved down because you know, me and my girlfriend at the time I had a Honda Civic. We went to we stopped, and our very first stop was um, Graceland. We went to Graceland when Elvis's aunt, that was eighty. <laughs> It was 82. So Elvis's, it was only five years after he died. So it was like his aunt was still living there and the cars were still in the driveway in the back. And um, you could only, could only, you couldn't go in the kitchen or the jungle room because his aunt was living there. And they still had the slot car track set up where they have all the records now. It was right. really good. You couldn't go into the racquetball court and, and, and the, the, the plaza across the street where the museums are now was still had the, like the, the hamburger joint, you know, remember that? Oh yeah. That little strip mall was still there. So <laughs> it, was, it was cool. And then we went and stayed in uh, Arca Butler, Mississippi for two weeks, well, maybe 10 days, but a, a little over a week. We stayed at Arca Butler, Mississippi at the Arca Butler dam and camped there for, and then came to Atlanta and ran out of money and uh, wound up building sewage plants after that so how did you guys meet then and driving and crying like when when did that happen and how how did that happen well i made a um demo tape with a guy i met in in smyrna georgia where i lived and the, he was a friend of mine he was a uh i think he was a wicca priest <laughs> um and i made a demo with him he had a futon shop and uh and uh, so I worked for him for a little while too, but yeah, he, we made a demo tape called "Everything Looks Better in the Dark," and uh, I think it actually, I think you can get it on eBay. Um, it's got a great cover. I didn't put it out, but um, and uh, we were just handing it out. I was handing it out to people, you know. And then I ran into Tim Nielsen from Driver to Cry, and you know, he was in the Night Pours, and he was like, "Man, you need to, you know." we need to find you a band. I was like, oh, I don't know. I kind of like, I don't know if I want to do that again. I already, I already did that. I mean, and were you man. writing music already or what's or, that? Uh, were you writing music at this point? I never stopped. Yeah. I'd started, okay. I started, I, the prosecutors had, the prosecutors had a song called driver to crime, mm-hmm. my punk rock band. Oh, okay. This is where the song with the title of the band came from. And, um, we released it. You can get that on iTunes too, or whatever it is. You can find it. Um, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. So I just can I've I've never stopped writing ever ever since I started. You know, I've always been exploring different ways of communicating. You know, but you know, um, it wasn't until you know later, probably in the Jeremy Cried era, where I was like not afraid to look in the audience and like share and and really kind of try to come up with something that was a little more uh made a little more sense you know i wasn't afraid to make a little more sense you know or just like scarred but smarter i got, I got a little which was kind of a heavy song you know but it's like a preachy song but it, it wasn't until the 80s till i really started writing late middle 80s till i started writing more 
things that were a little more relevant to, you know, common regular people, you know. Well, so in the late 80s, let's let's talk about the 80s and the early 90s, you released Mystery Road and Fly Me Courageous. Both of those were big albums. They had hits like Straight to Hell, Honeysuckle Blue. What what was life like when you go from working in the futon store to being a full-time musician and touring? And it had to be fun, I would think. Um, yes, I think I still, when I was, I think when I made our first record in 87, or the, the first Island record, 87, <laughs> I remember having to ask off for work. So I think I was still working when I was on Island. I was working at a cabinet shop, driving a truck. Uh, but, um, you know, Driving Crying has always been a very uh, cult kind of band um week you know it's pretty close we're still kind of in the same where we could tour in this in the kudzu circuit in the south you know atlanta memphis new orleans charleston nashville but outside of that region we're just like a really underground kind of like play this 80 people kind of band maybe 100 people so it's you know it We've never been. It's we've never been had to like have a, a reality check. We've never needed a, a humility check. You know, all we have to do is book a gig in Ohio. <laughs> know where you really stand. You know, it's like, you know, if you think you, your bridges, go play Milwaukee. You know, it's like <laughs> Chicago. You know, so we never we were never really that big outside of except for that one summer for Fly Me Courageous and uh, and we were opening for people and you know. Uh, um was not my favorite era you know um my favorite era really has been like the last 15 years has been really great you know where i'm just i'm not in competition i'm not trying to prove myself i'm just i am who i am i'm doing what i do take it or leave it you know the the pressure of it being cut out isn't really a reality anymore that you know such thing as being cut out anymore you know in right. the old days, like uh whisper tames line was cut out and i was like oh no no one's ever going to hear this. Where, how are we going to find, who's going to find this record, you know? And so when they created iTunes and Spotify and all that stuff, and I know that, you know, people who sold millions of records really felt the pinch, but for bands that sold thousands of records, it was freaking awesome because it was available to people in Spain and the Netherlands and yeah. Japan and, Mexico, we you know Denmark and and Seattle and places that we just can't go to. So it, it's there's no there's no there's no excuse to not listen to it, you know. And it's always out there. It'll be out there for the next fifty years, and that's exciting to me that some kid and you know when I'm dead will find us and be like, that was pretty good, man. You know, I kind of think that you know. So well, that's, it's, that's good it's news amazing. For me. Yeah, well, it's amazing what the internet did for independent artists because there was such a machine before that, and then all of a sudden, hey, you know, I can, I can put it out there myself if I want to, yeah. and I don't need anybody else. Granted, you know, labels have distribution and they have all the other things that go along with that, but um, there are countless examples of artists that just put it out there and they find their fans, and it's great. Oh. Yeah, we were lucky enough to have Island give us five, four or five albums. And then, you know, that was it. 
And then we had Geffen give us that one record. It was, and I appreciated the times that we did have an album, a label, because, you know, they take all the details that we have to do now. I mean, we've made our, Driver Crying and me have made our own records. Uh, I think The Flower and the Knife was the only one, maybe, I think that was the one I did with Warren Haynes. I think that was, they. I think his label paid for that one. Uh, Twit, uh, Evil Teen. How did but, you meet Warren Haynes? It was just I met him through this... Edward McCain and Hootie mm-hmm. at a benefit show in Charleston. Well, I but I actually knew him. I had actually actually that I said true. That's when I first played started playing with him. But the first time I met him was his wife Stephanie Scamardo worked as one of our A and R people in the A and R department in Island Records in New York. So she, that was her boyfriend at the time. I said, oh. And he was like, yeah, my brother, but my, my husband plays in the Allman Brothers. I was like, no way. So we well, that was of- that was another one of your your projects. So uh, what was what was what was that particular project like? And what was it like working with Warren? It was great. Uh, we I went to Hoboken to this water studios, it's called. And I. Um, uh, I remember I got it. There's a head of they had a uh, apartment above the studio. And Warren came in and uh, brought a tape player, put a little cassette player, and I sang him like 20 songs. He picked the top 10 and said, okay, these are the ones. He went home and listened to them. He goes, okay, these are the ones I think we should work on. And he gave, he brought Jerry Garcia's guitar, and I played. I, that's what I was playing. And he brought in, uh, and, he, and he played. Um, me and him just kind of went back and forth and played some music together. And he was like, that's a good take. That was good. And uh and then um he had some friends in town, the the they're called Frog Wings. It was Butch Trucks and Jimmy Herring and O'Teal and Derek Trucks and um John Popper and Edward McCain. And they were all kind of like doing this thing at Wetlands, like they for a whole week, and then they had different celebrities like Hansen or whatever, spin doctors or whatever, you know, would come in. And so they, when their sessions were over or before their sessions, they would come over to Hoboken and put down some tracks. So there's a really great song on there called Kerouac, which has Derek Trucks, Jimmy Herring, O'Teal, Burbridge, and Warren Haynes. And it is the weirdest. It is like, when you think about it, it sounds like a jam band heaven. You'll have to listen to Kerouac someday. It's kind of cool. It's a really weird yeah no you know that's that's uh i'm gonna look it up right after this because i now want to hear it (laughs) you gotta hear derek you can hear derek like he's just it's such a great song the most it's the most awesome non-jam band song ever it's so great and so jimmy harry's just like he's crazy colonel bruce craziness in there it's really awesome yeah we're going to talk about colonel bruce in a sec but um What's what? What was the project with the the Golden Palominos? Tell me about that one. Well, Anton lived in Atlanta, in New York, and when I moved to New York in uh, two thousand five or something like that, or I'm not sure when I moved there, but uh, Aaron Lee Tashin was living with me at the time, and he said, uh, "You know, I went down to this bar, and uh, a, a guy Anton Fierce says to say hello to you." He's like. <laughs> I said, what? Anton's playing in town? He goes, yeah, he plays every Tuesdays at Marion's down in the basement of this Marion's. Him and Tony Shear 
and another guy. They play a, uh, they play a little trio down there. And so I started going to visit, went and see him play. And I was like, this is so great. I haven't seen you in a long time. And, um, and then uh, we started practicing like every Tuesday and Thursday, you know, in New York, we play every, you know, so every so often on Monday nights or some, you know, we didn't play that much. We did the pianos, the living room uh, and the, the national underground, which was owned by Gavin DeGraw and Joey DeGraw. And, uh, you play with Aaron. Aaron was in the so it was this revolving thing where you know the Palominos is Anton, and then whatever kind of musicians he's working around. So one of the being uh, me, Anton paid for this record. He paid for all the recording of it, and um, it, it was called Good Country Mile, and it it was uh, Anton put the whole thing together. It was Anton Fear, uh, as Andy Hess, uh, some of it. I don't know if Catherine Popper's on it or not. I can't remember. Tony Shear, um, 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 Eleanor, Chris, and Eleanor, the the Dukes and Duchess, uh, you know Eleanor Whitmore and and Chris, uh, and um, uh, Aaron Lee Tashin, uh, Keith Christopher, maybe I'm not sure, but yeah, it was, but it was a, it was, it was a really great project that that Anton put together. It was Kevin Kinney and the Golden Palominos. So it was, but it was put together through all my practices that me and Anton would just, I didn't have anything to do. So I just go down there. We just, me and him sit down there and play for two hours, three hours and, you know, just smoke pot and play music. Just like we're 16. It was great. A lot of good memories of, of doing that. Yeah. Are you going to invite me next time? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I want an invitation. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Think About It. That's the, that's the latest album. And it's segue from talking about Colonel Bruce Hampton, because this album is a little bit about or inspired by him. Tell me about him and what inspired you about him. Well, he was a, a close friend of mine um, for many. Like he was. I remember him being in the room when we first met our very first lawyer in 1985. It was this guy, Charlie Phillips, was our lawyer. And his brother was Glenn Phillips. And Glenn Phillips played with Colonel Bruce in this band called the Hampton Grease Band. And I remember Colonel being over there in the corner and like, I think he was in tennis shorts. I think, I think they just got done playing tennis. And it was one of these things where I sang a couple songs for them, you know, you know, like, you know, hey man, play me some songs. So uh, that's when I met him. But then just over the years, he became like a really close friend of mine. We would do, do the Christmas jams together, of course. And um, he just, you know, would come see me and we never played together. Uh, uh, but we we got together week, you know, weekly or every couple of weeks and would hold court or we'd have uh, we'd go have to, uh, our favorite Vietnamese restaurant or he would pick a restaurant and he'd be like, he right. He would just be like uh, Papa Papa Deo's seven oh six. Okay, I'll beat you. So uh, yeah, so you know he was there. I was on stage with him when he died, and and that was really really beautiful way for him to go. It was really really a beautiful. You know, I couldn't have been more fitting. We had a great last supper together. We had Indian food in the basement. You know, surrounded by John Bell and. And and uh, Warren and Jimmy and Derek and it was really a great moment 
I remember. Um, and then he died like three hours later. Uh, but I am, um, when I was putting this, I've, I've been putting this, this record together for years now, probably four or five years. I wanted to do a record that was not me just like doing my Kevin thing, you know, like kids, no band, you know, as I said, I got that, 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 this voice that I had to invent so I could hear myself over the monitors <laughs> in the 80s. And, uh, so I want to do something like I really, like I really talk, like I really, the way that I, the way that I would sing to you if you, I was in your apartment at like three mm-hmm. in the morning and you had neighbors and it's like, you know, I want to play you a new song. It's like, I'm not going to be like full on, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. stop, look, listen, think, you know, it's like, stop, look, listen, think, think about it. This world this world so i'm singing very quiet and very like i got um i don't have any background uh it's it's so it's kind of a personal conversation between me and the listener and it's like a late night kind of thing um and it's you know um you know it's uh it's you know it's kind of just kind of an intimate kind of you know uh record but uh, it started off with, I said I saw Colonel with the Kevin Scott and Darren Stanley. They used to play with the Colonel. I thought, oh, I'd like to do a whole record like that, you know, with like the stand-up bass and the drum and the jazz thing. So we did half of it, and then they took a break in January, and we're gonna come back in March, and then the world shut down. So the first side one is 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 that representation of the way the record was going, and side two kind of became the some of the songs that I didn't have, have finished. And so I had a David Barbie play bass and Brad Morgan as my rhythm section for those ones. And then the final song was the uh, stop, look, listen, think is kind of like the, the, like uh, the end of the movie, kind of like the end of it's like, stop, look, listen, like where everybody comes out, like stop, look, you know, like in my mind, it's like a Broadway show. Like that's like the big band record. Like big Bill finish. Plays, Bill Berry plays drums and he plays and he plays he plays all these different rhythm. Like he's he's playing maracas and tambourine and he just really made this great percussion thing out of it. So and then it and then it after that final then the final credits there's like um I do an acapella song at the end that I wrote about the Mississippi River. So yeah. Well, you know the 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 people that you kind of put together on this album, the collaborators all come from different genres. Was that intentional or was there a purpose in putting these guys together specifically? Um, no, I don't have any, you know, everybody's the same age and same for me. It's, I don't really like Lauer Joe Metz is like in his early thirties, but he's just an old, he's an old soul. And, uh, he was, we were, I was planning on having him come to Athens to do it, but he, of course, the, it was shut down. So we sent him the tracks to, and he did his stuff in the studio in Nashville. But Peter Buck was there when we were first recorded it. He happened to be in town doing this uh, benefit show in Athens. So he came by for two days and brought his, all of his old regular REM guitars. And it was really great. So he plays on half the record. And I wanted him to do more, but it couldn't. I, 
his um he, he usually records remotely with Scott McCoy and Scott wasn't really seeing people you know because he had a you know <clears throat> he's being really cautious about the the, the you know lockdown thing so so but so did, no, that, did that make it challenging then to put this together because it was being you're putting together some of this during lockdown was that because really, we had so much time you know we really you know I don't want to I don't rush anymore to do anything <laughs> You know, I'm not in any hurry. No one's, you know, no one's lining up to know, you know what I mean? It's, there's no deadline. So um, it was uh, it was just, you know, it's like I tell people, just listen to the song. The song will tell you what it wants. And it's and that's really good. And I knew I wanted strings. So we had this really great uh, girl come in and do some string charts for a couple of the songs. And that was really great. And um, I knew what we what we did we did we wanted to keep it very clean and sparse. So we really kind of were like I think five instruments per song would be the max. So we usually have bass and drums and maybe like a vibraphone and a guitar, and then me. And so it's like we tried to keep it at like five five instruments or less per song. You know, we didn't want to. It wasn't like a it was the anti Phil Spector kind of thing. Very kind of keep it very clean and very because the that stand up bass is such a beautiful sound to it. We really didn't want to get in the way of it, you know. So. When you recorded it, you said in Athens. What is it you love about Athens? Uh well, it was you know a place I ran away to, uh, you know, in the nineties when I I was just. Um, it's just like a, it's like Mayberry, except Nirvana plays there. <laughs> you know, it's it's just kind of a small town. Well, all these crazy bands have come <laughs> out of there. I'm I'm fascinated by that. You know, yeah. it's just and I've been there, and it's such a cool place. But you just don't think that that's what would come out of there, but it does. It's nuts. Well, you know, the college has a lot of disgruntled, uh, uh, wanderlusty uh, students who, like, come <laughs> to, you know, they learn and then they they find the music scene and then they, you know, uh, they they are in dire need to express their frustrations. And what better way to, to, to vent your frustrations publicly than to start a band and just, like, and then something happens. You know, you start with just like the B fifty two, like one string, like. Uh-uh. <laughs> you know, and then you just go from there, and you just it's become this you know pylon. And they were really on the you know they really had a the art the 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 art uh, the art scene dialed in there. You know, they were just very open minded. The students were, I think, were. Back, but it was back when you know, um, you know, when kids could drink at eighteen. So it was, there was a lot more people in the bars. <laughs> but uh, but I don't know. You know, I think the frat scene there. I think I think we made a lot of money. Like in the old days, it was the only people that would pay you a thousand dollars would be like a frat. You know, you have to suffer through three sets and drink and beer and <laughs> singing the song they like twelve times if. You know, they're kind of assholes and we hated them, but they did pay a lot of bills, you know, so it worked out well, you know, until we until we got sick of them. But um, 
Well, you probably created some lifelong fans too. I mean, those guys probably love you. So yes, 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 they did. We we played a lot of. Uh, there was a couple really good ones. Like I think at ASO or AT. One of them was like a really cool art. It was like they had ones all over them. We all kind of did. I think it was the ATO. I can't remember, but yeah. I mean, to, to this day, I'm playing a lot of 50 year old birthday parties for people. Like I saw you, you know. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. But yeah, they were like the first music fans, you know, that was, you know, would pay you money. And so that's why Athens was, had such a great music scene because they could really, they needed more and more bands to do these parties and play the 40 watt and things like that. So it was a real supportive music scene, I think. You know, by the time I got there, I was more running away. I wasn't trying to be part of the music scene. I was kind of like, kind of hiding, you know, uh, it's just because I really just love the small, I love being able to walk downtown and eat good food and, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I was never really, I moved there, I probably lived there for 12 years or more, and I was never really considered a citizen, like, it's a weird dynamic, I was always Kevin Kenny from Atlanta, I was never, <laughs> I made three albums there, I was never, you know, I was never a townie, you know, which was what they call them. You know, I was never really indoctrinated into the, into the. Well, they're probably used to having all those students and that mentality of, Hey, people come and go, you know, they're not from right. here necessarily. Right. <laughs> and yeah, they're going to leave. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it has a good vibe to it. It sounds like, you know, everything you do there kind of sounds like Athens, you know, it's, it's a very nonchalant kind of, you know, it's it's you know not a lot of pressure you know the, but they may have the elf power and the elephant six stuff they do and all the Vic Chestnut Vic checks I had lived you know I had Michael Stipe was two blocks away and Mike Mills was three blocks away and Vic Chestnut was three blocks away and it's fun to run into those you know you know last time I ran the Kurt Cobain was talk like outside the coffee mm -hmm. shop he was staying with Michael and. He was holding his daughter, and we were talking about Peter and the Wolf, and talking about the bassoon, and you know, it's just a small town, mm. so yeah. it's, you can get a. It's not. It's a really, I think, advantage of it, you know. So the new album is coming out on vinyl. Um, I love the resurgence of vinyl. Uh, so, and you have great album art. It's a very cool album Thank cover. You. Um, so, was it hard to get it produced on vinyl? I mean, that's not the yes. easiest thing these days. It takes forever. I hear. Yeah, yeah it, it's a you know it's it's a it's kind of it's great that they're making vinyl and it was but you know I think that um, unfortunately uh, the resurgence of vinyl made it you can't just open up a record pressing plant it takes a lot of just like technicians and it's a very complicated procedure. Have and you ever toured one? Have you ever been inside one? Yes. Yeah, yeah the they're very Athens. cool. The one in they're Athens cool. is really yeah. great. It's called, um, what's the one in Athens called? Um, Tinder. Um, I can't remember. I forgot their name. But um, We have one here in Memphis called Memphis Record Pressing. Oh, there it's you go. A, yeah, very cool plant. And they've grown doubled and tripled, and it's been crazy. Yeah. Well, what happened was that people wanted started, people started collecting the album covers. Like, and I don't know how good their stereos are, but 
you have to have a good stereo to make vinyl work. You know, you can't play it on a on a ninety nine dollar Amazon <laughs> Crosley. It's you're not gonna enjoy. It'd be better if you got the CD or listen to it. You know. So okay, a lot you of- know what? That is a very good point. That part hasn't caught up yet at all because when when, I, when we were growing up, they had amazing turntables, right, and systems. Right. And now that's what you have. You you know, most people go in and buy these inexpensive turntables, and right. you know, it seems like it hasn't. The equipment hasn't caught up yet. Even the ones that look like good turntables are kind of. <laughs> You have to really, you have to spend five hundred hours at least to get a good turntable. That's really you can really appreciate the vinyl. So so that that brings me to the like trying to kill you know when these record pl- pressing plants they're small you know there's not huge ones left anymore. I mean the Memphis one's probably probably one of the bigger ones, but they get clogged up with Adele and Taylor Swift and Ed yeah. Sheeran. And Paul McCartney and the Stones and Zeppelin and all these reissues that they're selling at the at the Urban Outfitters, and people are buying them because they look cool, and then they're playing them on their Crosley record player or whatever. I don't know what. The, so you know, I'm I'm glad they're buying them, but it's ruining it for a lot of us independent people who like have been trying to keep it alive, and now we're like in the back of the line, like we can't we got to wait eight months now to get a vinyl pressed so you know i think i'm going back to cds <laughs> maybe <laughs> go you back to cds just... until they build more pressing plants cause... i was gonna say maybe you can just buy your own record press you know just well you DIY. know peter buck told me he had an opportunity to buy one in seattle there was like a bunch of people found like eight presses but he said the people that uh the engineers that made those uh records they're very far very hard to find them it's hard to find those people because they are yeah they're just they were they were they were trained in a certain they were experts at it and they made millions of records and then when they retired they really didn't pass it on to anybody and there's really nobody teaching it you know so unfortunately i think they're bringing up more and more like more people are coming are learning how to do it and people are finding out that there's profit. So maybe Bill Gates will get involved and buy a huge pressing plant or maybe <laughs> Elon Musk will buy one. And, but you know, um, unless people listen to it correctly, it's not, they're going to be like, it doesn't sound that much better. It's like, yeah. Cause you're playing it on a piece of crap. Crummy piece, right. <laughs> <laughs> Crummy machine. Yeah. Okay. So, so I have one last question for you about the album though. Um, I read that you call the album a Jim Jarmusch black and white soundtrack. And I love that reference just because I love Jim Jarmusch. And we're a block from where he filmed Mystery Train. That's where our studio is. Yeah. And uh, um, Lorraine, right? mm -hmm. That's exactly where we are. We back up right to the Lorraine Motel. And I just wanted to hear from you what that reference was about and from, you know, why you made that reference in particular. Well, it's a, you know, I got the Criterion app for my, uh, <laughs> I watch, I, I like to watch the Criterion channel, you know, it's a hundred dollars a year, but you get full access to all black and white Criterion. I just love that, that, that black and white, you know, cigarettes, you know, what, what was it with smoking, uh, what was that called smoking cigarettes or I don't know, but you know, just it's that, that it's that Jim, that really dark 
kind of like um if I did videos for the, they would all be in black and white and all have a lot of shadows and you know it would be it would be a very black and white it's a very black and white record you know I think so that's kind of that's so when I close my eyes and I see it that's kind of what I see except at the end with the stop look listen think song I think that might be like a transition to some color you know a little bit of color in that one but are um, we all going to heaven after that uh sure <laughs> Or, or, or Stuckies. Or, right. or, or Stuckies. Yeah. Okay. I actually did a Stuckies tour of the South one time where anytime I passed one, I had to stop there. There, there are a go. lot of them, you know. There's a lot of them. Well, a good, the girl, um, Stephanie Stuckey is a, an acquaintance of ours. So uh, we have some Stuckies paraphernalia here. And I think they're bringing Stuckies back. I think there's plans to, to, I think they're still out there, but I think they're planning on revamping them a little bit. Hey, there's, there's a place for Stuckies. I love Stuckies. She brought us a six pack of Stuckies pecan roll beer. So wow, it was pretty. I didn't good know they actually. had beer. Huh? <laughs> I didn't know they <laughs> had beer at Stuckies. Well, it was a it was a it was a uh, prototype that they gave me a six pack <laughs> of. So I wish I kept a can, but they I, I had a, yeah. So I don't know what I did with them, but they were pretty good though. Very mapley pecan beer. Yeah, they do beer. Million okay, beer. well, you know, we're going to meet up at a Stuckey's one day. How about that? <laughs> um, listen, Kevin, it was so great talking to you. Um, I'm looking forward to coming and uh, doing another Diddy TV. Uh, I think I've done two of them. Or have I done two or three? Yeah. I've been yeah. in that building at least two or three times, I think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, come on. It's, come really one of my, it's always one of my favorite things to do. It's such a cool little vibe down there. You know, it's really awesome. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kevin Kinney about his first solo album in 10 years and his first vinyl release since the 1990s. Think about it. Kevin always inspires us with his creative drive and his prolific ability to produce amazing solo projects while still making new albums with his driving and crying bandmates. He also tells us the real story about the life of a working musician. Thanks again to Kevin for joining us on Insights. We appreciate his sense of humor, and we hope everyone will get to see him perform next time he's in your neck of the woods. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights.